Okay, so we're going to begin now this Sicha, this talk from the Rebbe on this week's Parsha, Kitavo. And it's this talk was said by the Rebbe in 1974, and it came out, published in a booklet in 1978. It's the second talk of Parsha Kitavo, the second Sicha, in volume 19 of the Lakute Sichos. Now, here we're going to find today a fascinating idea that I actually saw it in the unedited version where the Rebbe says that he didn't see anybody talk about this particular uh, verse in this kind of way with the Hasidic flavor insight to, of the magnitude that we're going to talk about. So it's very interesting that the Rebbe dug into it and revealed to us this unbelievable insight. What he's basically going to do to us is is take us on a little um, understanding, a little ride, showing us that in this week's Parsha, we have a list of 98 warnings that if we don't do so-and-so, then you're going to get this and this punishment. 98 different kinds of punishments are listed in this week's Parsha. It's a very, very uh, heavy weight uh, Parsha. Actually, in many uh, shuls, Nobody wants to get that aliyah that has all the curses in it because we jammed them all into one aliyah. It's actually this week, it's in the sixth aliyah. So usually the reader of the Torah, he just, nobody's getting called up. So he just says the blessing and does the aliyah. But this way, you know, somebody needs to say the bracha, but nobody wants to be called up. But really, what Hasidus always does, as we have learned many times, is Hasidus takes an idea that seems to be so super negative and it shows us how super positive that subject is. And we're going to learn that here today. But first, the Rebbe gives us a little introduction before he gets into the, the, the bones, the essence of this idea of, these, of this punishment and warning for the specific punishment that he's going to talk about. And he's going to talk about the last of all the warnings of all the punishments. It's called, it's the number 98. It's basically the last verse of this whole subject. And he's going to show us that if you build it up, okay, if you don't do my Torah mitzvahs, you're going to get this punishment. You don't do it, if you don't do it, you're going to, it's going to get worse. You don't do it, it's going to go worse. And it's going to go worse. So punishment number 98 is clearly has to be the absolute worst and craziest, you know, ideas of punishment. And we're going to learn today and he's going to show us how bad a bad could be. And then he's going to show us how Hasidus opens up our eyes and shows us that what you think was the worst curse or the worst punishment really is the highest level blessing possible. So it turns around the whole thing, a whole new level of depth. So let's begin like this. He says that we have already explained many times that whenever there's the com- a commentary by Rashi, where Rashi gives his, his insight, which is obviously his most important point of Rashi, is always to point out the simple literal level of interpretation of a verse, that's what Rashi says he does, inside the Rashi's commentary, there's also what's called the yayin, the wine of the Torah. Why do we call it the wine? Simply understood is because when a person drinks wine, what happens? The quote is, you drink, take in wine and the secrets come out. That means that deep, deep inside the wine is always is the secrets. That's what 
if you think about wine, that's what you think about, that the greatest secrets. So we know that the greatest secrets are hidden in the Rashi's commentary. And every word, nuance, letter, and so on. Now, the Rebbe many times opened our eyes to the wine of the, of the Rashi's interpretation, meaning the secrets, the hidden beauty, the depth of it. But for that, you have to dig deeper. Rashi talks only on the surface. You want his depreciation, you got to go all the way, all the way deep. Like there's no one, the, the, there's a famous uh, uh, quote from the Alter Rebbe himself, whose birthday was today on Chai El. Which is the, there's a, a recording in 1945. This, that's actually published in English also today. That in 1945, the previous Rebbe has a very lengthy talk on Chayel, and he talks the whole history how the Alter Rebbe was born, how his soul was a new soul that would never came down to this world before since the days of Mount Sinai. That soul. Never came down to the world. Imagine that. And he talks the whole thing of how the Balshemto prepared for this for the world to for the entry of this soul. And he speaks there about how the Alter, um, instructions he gave to the Alter Rebbe's parents, uh, the Balshemto gave instructions how they nobody should see this kid for, for a few years. And he, from when he was already one years old, he was able to talk. Two years old, he understood everything. It was like this 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 miracle child, you know, that came into this world. So over there, the Baal Shem Tov says that his birth, Chayel, was in the week of Kumi Ori, because that's the beginning of the Haftorah this Shabbos. And it, Kumi Ori means, arise the light of Jerusalem, even though you saw Jerusalem in the destruction, but arise the light, there's a big deep light there. So he calls this whole birth of the Baal Shem Tov with the name of the Haftorah, Kumi Ori. So the Balshe- that's what the Balshanta said regarding the Alter Rebbe's birthday on this date, which happens to be today, Chayel. So we know that the same too applies even in this week's Parsha where we have the most harshest warnings. If you don't follow my commandments, you're going to get the most harshest one. But there also you have the most deepest information, the wine that we're going to soon reveal soon. And we could say that it's even more important, not just in any Rashi's commentary of the whole Torah, but in his commentary to the warning section, the Teichacha section in today's Parsha. And like the Alter Rebbe writes in his famous commentary on the weekly Parsha called the Lakut Torah, over there the Alter Rebbe says that in truth, all the warnings, the curses in today's Parsha are all blessings. All blessings. Now, there's actually a famous thing. Only the Alter Rebbe was able to see the, the depth in all of it, you know. But there's a famous story that he brings out in a footnote here that the Alter Rebbe's son, known as the Mittal Rebbe, when he was a little kid, his name was Daiber. So he was in the synagogue one Shabbos, this week's Parsha Shabbos, and he heard the, the reader of the Torah reading it. And in the middle of the service, he, he fainted. He heard the reader reading all these curses. Whoa, he got so scared. He, he got so sick that the Alter Rebbe debated halachically if his son would be able to fast that year on Yom Kippur. It means it, it affected his health, hearing the reading of the curses, to the point that three weeks later, it was a question if he could fast. That's how much it, it if So they, when, they, when they revived the Alter Rebbe's son, people in the synagogue, they asked him, what happened this year that you took it so to heart that you, you, know, you, you couldn't handle this? Every year we read this. So he said, you don't understand. He said, every year, who's the reader in our synagogue of the Parsha? It's the Alter Rebbe himself, my father. And when my father reads those curses, I don't hear curses. I hear only blessings. But this year, my father was out of town. So 
somebody else stepped up to the plate and that I, I just didn't hear the same. So you could understand that if you really take the time to learn it, you could really appreciate the magnitude of the blessings that's there, but it takes a lot of effort. And that's what we're going to attempt here today to be able to explain and see the greatness of the beauty that it's truly deep inside. It's really a blessing. And we have this with many stuff of the, from the Rashi over the, over, throughout the whole Torah, and we're going to see the same thing here. Now, what I want to do here today is, is a little bit help us all to appreciate this. We're going to have to divide the class in two parts. First, we're going to have to understand well the actual 98th curse. And we have to understand it really, really well and what Rashi says. And if you understand really well the curse and the details of the curse, then you're going to be able to appreciate the light or the wine, you know, that brings out the deep secrets that really those are not curses, those are blessings. But in order to appreciate the blessing side, you have to first understand well the harsh words of the literal level that's on the surface, the written Torah. So let's understand this. And if you're on the screen, you'll, I'm going to show you a, 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 the actual verse. And we're going to learn this verse well. And once you learn this verse well, then the sicha, this talk, is going to flow easily, you're going to see. So here it is. It's actually verse 68. And the verse says like this. If you don't follow my commandments, what God is going to do is, he says like this, and the Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. Every piece of the verse you have to understand well, then you're going to have to understand the Rashi well, and then the Rebbe is going to help us, help us to understand the Rashi really well. So let's first the simple verse, okay? And then we'll get to understanding it even better. So the ver- first thing is, he says, and the Lord will bring you back to Egypt in ships. Remember, we left Egypt, slavery, 210 years in Egypt. We left, we went through the splitting of the sea, we got the Torah, we're in Egypt for 40 years, right? We're about to go into the land of Israel. Moshe is talking to us and telling us all the stuff that Hashem told him. And the Hashem will take you back to the Egypt. So that's clearly a major punishment. You're going to have to go back into your place of slavery, the place where everybody would dread to go back to. How are you going to go back? He's going to take you back to Egypt in ships. Let's pause a second. What's the simple understanding when it says the word ships? So jump into Rashi a second. Rashi says, what do you mean a ships? It's not just a regular ship. You're going to go back by boat instead of walking to Egypt. You're going to go back by ships of captivity. It's going to be basically a prison ship. If you don't follow my commandments, the punishment's going to be, you're going to go back in a prison ship. Ships of captivity. Shivya, Bisfinais means a boat. Rashi translates Bisfinais means a ship, a boat. And what kind of boat? Bashivya in a way of kept, captive. Now, the next words of the verse, through the way about which I had said to you, that you will never see it again. So what's the punishment God is saying? I'm going to take you back to Egypt in ships, to the place in the path that I told you you're never going to end up seeing Egypt again. When we left Egypt, Hashem said, you're going to leave now for good, and you're never going to go see that misery again. But 
Now he's telling us, one second, if you're going to behave badly, you're going to go back as captives and you're going to go back to the place where I said originally you'll never go back to. Next words of the verses. And there you will seek to be sold to your enemies for slaves and handmaids. But there will be no buyer to buy you. So Rashi stops here and he says, what does it mean? And over there, you will seek to be sold to your enemies as a slave or, and handmaids. What does that mean? So Rashi says, look, the situation is going to be so bad for you. You're going to be a captive in this ship. You're going to come back to Egypt as a prisoner, basically. You're going to be so miserable. So you're going to want to, who's going to sell you as a slave? You, the person who's being sent back to Egypt is going to want to go back, be sold as a slave. You're soon going to see the Rebbe is going to point out that it's so bad that you're even willing to become a slave or a maidservant for somebody. But the problem is, the ain kona, that's the final words of the curses. There won't be a buyer to buy you as a slave. Points out the Rashi. There will be no buyer. You know why? Because they will decree death and destruction upon you. In other words, it's so bad the situation is so bad that when you're going to go back to Egypt, the people that took you in for captive to take you back to Egypt, they will have already decreed to kill you as soon as you arrive to Egypt. That's why nobody's there to buy you. Because why would somebody want to buy you as a slave if they know you're going to be, you're going to be killed tomorrow? So in other words, let's now clarify ourselves to understand the magnitude where Rashi is trying to help us to understand. The verse says, if you sin and so and so on and so forth, all these bad things, then you're going to go back to Egypt. To the, What does it mean back to Egypt? By boat. The verse says you're going to go back by Oniyais, which Rashi interprets to mean a boat. What kind of boat? It's going to be a boat for captives. And no, and you're going to want to, it's going to be the place that I told you you'll never go back there. Now you're going to have to go back there because you're not listening to me. And... You're, it's going to be so bad you're going to want to be sold as a slave. Rashi points that out. That means the person is going to want, the slave is going to be one of, the punished person who's captive is going to want to be sold as a slave or a maidservant. But nobody will want to buy you. Rashi says, you know why nobody wants to buy you? It is so bad, this curse. It's because you would be punished and already sentenced to death and that's why nobody's going to want to buy you so now now you now that you understand the verse that's the simple verse and rashi just helped to sprinkle it a little bit to understand that this is a very harsh punishment so simply understood since this verse is the last verse of all the 98 curses it's trying to tell you that it's so bad that it's the worst punishment of everything it's such a gavaldica such a a mind-boggling punishment that you will have to go back to Egypt and nobody's even going to want to buy you as a slave or a maidservant. That's how bad. So it comes out that Rashi's explaining to us that what does it mean, Aniyah's? Rashi says it means a boat. What kind of boat? It's going to be a boat of a captive people that are going to be captive. Today we call it probably a, a prisoner's ship. And nobody's going to want to buy you. Why? Because there won't be any buyers, Rashi adds. It's so bad because you're going to be sentenced to death. And that's why nobody's going to want to buy you. Because you're, you're not worth anything. You're basically worth a dead body. Why would somebody want to buy you? 
So now, learning simply the Rashi on, on first glance, Rashi is basically telling you that there's two terrible things that are going on over here. Number one, that the Jews will have to come back to Egypt as captives. That's the one bad thing of the, in this curse. Number two, you're also going to be uh, sentenced to death. They're going to decree on you that you should be killed and be completely annihilated. All the other words of the verse that it's going to be a boat, it's going to be to the place where I told you you're never going to see before, that seems like details to the point. The main point is the two punishments. It's going to be, you're going to be like captives and that you're going to be sentenced to death by those that take you as captives back there. But we could say that Rashi, through us delving in a little bit more carefully to understand the Rashi properly, we're going to get to understand that every word in this verse is really to show you how much worse this punishment is. And remember, once we're going to understand, probably over the next 15, 20 minutes, we're going to understand how bad this curse is, every single word of the verse, then we're going to be able to appreciate the outcome of how it's truly, really a blessing. But first understand how it's such a terrible curse. So the fact that there's all these other words that are details in the verse must be that we're going to be able to dig into it and the wine of the Torah, the Yena Shel Torah, is going to come out soon. But first we got to dig to get to that wine that's hidden in that grape. So we can understand this by first as an introduction to understand what are these words in the verse how does it help us to understand anything to a punishment by saying, well, I'm going to bring you back to Egypt, and that's the place that I said you're never going to go back and see that place before. What are those words helping us to understand anything? How does it help me to understand that this is a really bad punishment? You could have taken me anywhere where you're going to sentence me to death. How does it help by understanding that you're going to go back to the place of Egypt where I said you're never going to go back to first? Oh, that's really bad. What is that piece of information that the place where I said you're never going to go back add to anything here? So the Rebbe brings down two commentaries that suggest an answer, but both of them, the Rebbe explains to us that they're not strong enough, those commentaries, and he's going to tell us why. One is from the famous commentary, the Barbanel, and the Barbanel is a, one of the well-known commentaries in the, uh, in the Chumash, and I'll tell you even when he lived, the Barbanel was a commentary who lived, he passed away in the year 1508, and he lived in, he was a leader in Spanish jury. Okay, so but there, he lived there, and the Barbanel has a commentary on the Chumash, and he says the following, by telling me that it's, I'm going to return you to the place, specifically how, with what way of transportation, by boat, what is that adding to me? That's telling me, that Hashem said, you're never going to go back to the place. You're never going to see that place again. That means that you will never go on the road. You're never going to go on this path back to Egypt. Okay, so the verse is telling me, you're right. I'm not going to take you to the place that I said that you'll never go back on this path back to Egypt. But I could take you by boat. I could take you on a different route. So that's what the Barbanel says. He says, 
that's what it looks like, the addition by telling me. The way you're going to get transferred is to tell me that it's not this path, it's a different way. But the Rebbe says that this is very difficult to really swallow, that that's the reason to tell me by both. Because, as we've said many times, Rashi only talks the simple explanation of a verse. What's the difference to the curse that the weight that it's not a contradiction to God's promise that you're not going to go back in this way to Egypt. And why? This is where you're going to tell it to me. You're in the middle of telling me all the curses. If you don't do my Torah mitzvahs, this is what's going to happen to you. So you have to go and explain to me a boat to tell me that, oh, it's not a contradiction what God said. You're not going to go through this path. So you're going to go through a different way. In simple text of the Chumash, you're not gaining anything by explaining me this contradiction in this place here. You're in the middle of rebuking your kid, let's say, yeah? I'm in the middle of rebuking. Then you're going to say, oh, you know what? Why did you go shopping in this store? I told you not to go shopping there. It's not the place to talk about it. So that's his question. Barbanel's answer about the boat, he says, it's a nice answer, but it doesn't fit with the place in this context here about the story of the Teichacha, of the warnings to tell me about this doesn't really help me to understand that it's a worse punishment. It's number 98, the worst of all the punishments. You're going to go back by boat. How does the boat thing make the punishment any worse by telling me the answer that you said? Okay, so the Rebbe says, maybe you could try to bring another answer from another commentary called the Medrash Leket. The Medrash Leket is another uh, um, you know, famous uh, Medrash. And over there, the Leket says the following. He says that the verse is trying to stress to us what, is, what happens when a person does a sin. Meaning, even though I told you, you're never going to go back to this place of Egypt, you should know that if you do a sin, God could retract what he said. That's the extent of how bad it is to do a sin. Even though God said, I'll never take, you're never going to go back and see Egypt. But if you do a sin, <laughs> then I could retract on my words and I could take you back to Egypt. Rebbe says, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. You're trying to say how drastic this is to do a sin. But it's also not smooth in the literal context of what's going on here. To know that if you do a sin, it could cause to nullify God's promise I don't need to have the curses here to tell you that. We already know this from earlier on in the Torah. If you remember the story when Jacob came to meet his brother Esav after 20 years, so it says there that he was very scared. Jacob was scared. And God said to Jacob, don't be scared. You have nothing to be scared of. I promised you all the blessings that's still going to happen. And over there, Rashi says, you know, why did Jacob get scared? God did promise him already earlier on that he's going to have all these great blessings. So why was he scared? So over there it says that Jacob said to himself, you know, maybe I sinned somewhere in the last 20 years. So maybe I lost my merit for those blessings to stay. So now God is reassuring him, no, you're still okay. I promised you, I'm giving it to you. But the fact that it's possible to lose something, maybe if you did a sin, you could maybe lose and God would have to retract what he promised. I already know that concept from earlier on in the Torah. So I don't need here to, 
to teach me this, that in the curses here, that if I'm going to sin, you're going to go back to Egypt and God will nullify his promise that you won't go back. It's the wrong place to tell me this. I already know this idea. And it's obviously that it has no place in the simple understanding of the Torah to learn that even though God said a commandment that you're not going to go in this path, but if you sin, I could still take you back in this path. What's the connection to warnings when you're warning and you want to curse us, you want to tell us these harsh warnings, how does that help me in anything to know that God has, you know, could go change his, his weight of his promise? What's the connection here that my sins could cause such a bad thing to the point that God will even force us to go back to a place that we weren't supposed to go there? What does that help me understand anything? Just say, that you're going to go to Egypt. Why do you have to answer this thing about it's the place that I said you're never going to go? Next point. We could understand this by first understanding better the whole idea of the way of transportation. We're very into the world today of transportation. So let's understand better this word in the verse of this curse. What was the word of our transportation we said? Ba'anias. Anias means ships, boats. Now, Rashi says, what kind of boats? It's boats for captives. All captive prisoners go in this boat. That's what it's talking about. Now, the fact that Jews will go back to Egypt as captives, really, if you think about it, that has nothing to do with the idea of a boat. What does a boat got to do with it? You could just tell me you're going to go back to Egypt as captives. Why do I have to know that you're going to go back in a boat? What does the boat got to do with anything? Just say, if you do sins, you're going to go, you'll be punished. You're going to go like, so to speak, into a jail. You're going to be captives. What's the idea of the boat here? So he brings down that there's a commentary called the Baile Hatosfis. On the commentary margins of the Talmud, there's something called Tosfis. So the sages of the Tosfis, is commentaries that collected their information, what they taught, and they have an interesting way of understanding about the boats. So they said like this, by knowing the boats, in the, the idea of going back, not just as captive, but captives in a boat, does teach me an additional idea. Why? Because if you were to go back to Egypt by foot, who's capable to make such a long journey from all the way in the desert, from Israel, all the way back to Egypt? Only the men, People that work out and are strong, but the women that are taking care of their kids, they're tired, the children for sure themselves, they're not capable to go back by foot. So they say, when it says boats, it's trying to tell you how harsh the punishment is. It's so harsh that men, women, and children are subject to this punishment if we fall off the right path of Torah mitzvahs. So the Rebbe says, one second, that's what you're trying to tell me? The verse only said captives. Rashi, sorry. Rashi said boats of captives. That's all he said, period. Rashi didn't add any other words. It's understood from this that according to Rashi, the accomplishment is not about the captives. That means all people will will be captives. It means the fact itself that you are a captive has to do something with boats. It can't mean that boats is trying to tell me captives means men, women, and children. Rashi only said captives. He didn't 
specify what kind of category of people are going to be captives. He said captives. Obviously that means everybody. But what is it going to do with the boat? So he says, let's understand this idea of the boat more. Let's explain it. Rashi explains that every single detail in this verse is important to understand how harsh the decree is for sinning. It's not just a general idea. It's it, the idea of going back to Egypt. Every detail is relevant to everybody. And therefore, Rashi, when he says the verse, he, he actually um, doesn't use short words. He lengthens himself. He says, the verse says, boats in the path that I said, I'm never going to take you there. That means boats in the path is to tell me something more in the punishment. In the fact alone that you're going to go back in the in this in a certain path, the way that the way of going in this path is so bad in two details, and this is what we're going to see that it's so bad that the way you're going to go back as captives is so bad. A in the fact that besides the fact that in Egypt you're going to be captives, even on the way to Egypt you're going to go as captives. In a ship. Now, we all understand, probably there's pictures out there of prisoner boats where they probably put the prisoners in the basement in the lower deck where there's not a lot of oxygen or other kinds of comforts there. Being on a boat could be is an additional punishment here. Understanding that you're going at the whole travel, you're going to be as a captive. Let's understand this. Imagine when you're going on the road back to Egypt. Well, you know what? There's a few, there are a few comforts. I get to see when it's light. I get to see when it's dark. I get to see the, I get the breeze when, when there's a good wind. Going on the ocean in a boat, you're confined to a lot of pain. More pain than going on the regular route. And to say like those Bailehatosfis, to say that it's there to the boat is to include the women and children, he says, no, no, that's not a good answer at all. Because we all remember, we all left Egypt a few parshas before. And who walked, who left Egypt? How did we go? We didn't leave on boats. We walked men, women, and children. We left Egypt. So we know that the women and children are capable to walk also. <laughs> so you can tell me that they're not capable to walk back. How did they get to there? They also walked. And if the walk has to go slower, so it made the trip be a little bit slower. So that's one point where we see a heaviness in the actual boat transportation as prisoners. Number two, when it said in the way, in the path, that I said you'll never go back there, they're going to go back to Egypt through a way that they actually went before. What does that mean, the path that we went before? There was already a verse that we had earlier in the Torah, in Parsha Ekev. It's, the Torah specified for us, what did the Jews travel? How, like, what kind of desert did we go through? Was it uh, Las Vegas? What kind of desert was this? Well, the verse told us, and it used a bunch of adjectives. It said, Midbar HaGadol, the massive desert. It said the Hanoira, the awesome desert. It said it's the place, the desert that has lots of snakes. It has placed a sarif, it has vipers there. It has scorpions there. It's a place where there's no water, a dry, dry place with no water. It's a place of thirst. Now, 
understand when a God says, I'm going to take you back to the place, to that path that I told you you're not going to go, meaning it's so bad, I'm going to take you to the place that is the same kind of massive desert with the, with like of all the lists that we just said. And obviously, we're not going to have all the miracles that we had when we left Egypt. Now you're going to be punished. So we're not going to have the mud falling from heaven and the water coming from the rock and all the other miracles. Ah. So now I'm understanding a little bit more. When it says the harsh decrees that's going to hit us, it's not just the first two points that it's going to be a place of you're going to be captives and it's going to be a place that you're going to be decreed upon you to be killed. It's in addition to that. There's two more points. You're going to be captives in a ship where it's super uncomfortable there and painful. And another point, it's going to be the kind of experience of that massive desert that was super, super scary in that desert with, again, the massive desert, the the awesome snakes, vipers, scorpions, and no water. And Rashi doesn't even have to get into those details of every of all those details about the kind of desert it is. Just like he didn't have to tell us the great punishment when he says you're going to go back to Egypt. He doesn't have to tell you what's in Egypt. Oh, in Egypt, oh, that's the place where the Egyptians had to have plagues. He doesn't have to get into that. Everybody knows when you're going to go back to Egypt <laughs> what it is. Now with this, we can understand the next piece. When it says you're going to be sold to as a sl- to your enemies as slaves and maidservants, Rashi says it's not that the people that took you as captives are going to sell you. You yourself are going to want to be sold. What does that mean? He said you're going to be a captive. So what do you mean? You yourself are going to say, are you going to want to be sold? What, 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 since when do you have a, an opinion? You're a prisoner. You don't have an opinion to be sold. And why does the verse actually say the word like that, that you're going to be sold and it doesn't say you're going to be sold by others. It says that you're not going to be bought because they have already decreed upon you to be killed. So it's not understood over here at all of who's going to want to be sold, you or they're going to want to sell you. What's the difference? Who wants to sell you? Why does Rashi have to say that you want to be sold? Rashi, who cares? You want to be sold. The people that took you as captive want to sell you. But now we can understand all this. Since every detail here is to tell you more of how harsh this punishment is, it's trying to tell you that it's going to be so bad the captivity is going to be so bad that we are going to say, hello, can I please get out of this captive? I'll do anything to survive. Let me go. I'll be a slave on the street. Let me be a maidservant for anybody as soon as we arrive back to Egypt. That's all I want to do. And not just that. We are, we are, it's so bad, this captive in the ships, we are even going to be willing to say to my enemies, I'll be a slave for my enemy. Wow. Now we can understand. When Rashi adds those words that you're not going to be bought, but nobody will want to buy you. And Rashi says, you know why nobody will want to be buy you? Because you're already subject to be death. Now we understand how bad it is. It is so bad that you're willing now to be sold. I mean, that has to be really bad. That you're willing to, to be a slave, right? Do you remember only the generation before us when people said it was so bad, they said, I just want to die under the train track. People said that. like It was so bad. It was like that then. You were captives in these ships. People were like, you're going to be willing to say, I will be a slave back to the Egyptians again. And that's what Rashi's telling us, that even this, that'll be so bad that you're going to be willing to sell yourself as a slave, says Rashi. 
Nobody's even going to want to buy you as a slave. That's how bad it is. Because they know that the people that took you as captives have already sentenced you to death. So there's no value at all for you. That's how bad this whole thing is. Okay. So now, when we hear this whole verse, if you zoom out literally now, you could go to sleep with a big headache. Knowing that, oy vey, this is so bad. Right? Why would you want to come back to shul to read the next aliyah? It's so bad. But... Here comes the unbelievable light that goes on because now the Rebbe is going to show us that if you look very carefully in the deep insights of words, we're now going to see and turn over all these harsh curses and show you a positive blessing in everything. (laughs) And, And only by understanding the worst curse from all of them, you could understand the greatest blessing from the whole picture. Like, In other words, if I tell you a simple curse and you tell me, ah, that's a blessing, you know, that's easy, right? He, he actually quoted earlier, a, a, there was a footnote, but I'll just share it with you. He said that the Talmud has a story about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechoi that he once told his son that he told him that, um, that you should go visit these few sages over there. Anyway, so he went to these sages there and he said, go get some blessings from them. So the Talmud tells us he went there and instead of blessings, they gave him a whole download of curses. <laughs> so he came home to his dad and he said, what did you send me there for? They gave me this whole load of curses instead of blessings. So he said, no, 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 my son. Every word that they told you is really a blessing. Tell me what they told you and I'm going to show you how it's a blessing. So just, I'll give you like one little example and then we'll go back into the, to the text here of the, of the wine the hidden, the hiddenness here of the Rashi. But so one example is they said to him that you're going to sow your fields, but you're never going to reap the benefit. You're never going to be able to harvest it. He told his father, what a curse that is. So he told his son, he said, no, 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 no. Let me tell you what they really said, that it's a blessing. What they were saying is that you're going to plow, you're going to seed the field means you're going to produce children. And what does it mean you're never going to have to harvest it that your children won't die? So actually it was a blessing. You thought it means literally you're going to sow your fields and you're not going to be able to cut it. (laughs) Not cut it means your kids won't get cut down. So you see, if you open your eyes, you can see how there are blessings in things. So now let's go here now to the yena, to the yayin of the Torah, the deeper insight of this whole Rashi. And actually, because the harshness was so drastic in every detail like we just learned, you're going to see the Rebbe is going to innovate to us, show us some drastic blessings of things that we never imagined before in our lives. So here he tells us like this. Let's understand, what's the point of the warnings in general? Why does God give us these warnings, these rebukes? If you don't do this, you know? And what happens if you do? Obviously, you don't have to get cursed. You just have to repent. So what's the whole point of God telling us this? Is he wants us to repent. That's the whole point. And by telling us this, at the end of all the warnings, it's trying to tell you that this is actually the goal of all the 98 warnings is really to get us to do tshuva. What's the point of tshuva? Why should you do tshuva? A person could say, I sinned. Come on, I enjoyed it. Why do I have to do tshuva? So the answer is, the Talmud says, doing tshuva, repentance for sin, is so amazing because it takes the sin 
and it transforms it to be a merit. How's that possible? How's that possible? You're going to take the sin and that's going to become a merit. So one of the ways of understanding this is, the simple way of understanding this idea is, let's say, for example, a person ate a food that you're not allowed to eat. How does the food now transfer into something good if I, rep- if I regret it, I repent? It's very simple. Because what happens when you ate that? You now became very far from Hashem. So far, you're so far down. Now, when you get really, really, really far, you hit rock bottom. And then you say, oh my goodness, I am so far from God. I better start shaping up this year. So what made you come back to get close to Hashem, it was the fact that you were so far. So it's the farness itself, it's the sin itself that inspired you to come back. It's the feeling of being so far, so lonely, so separated, that you were now motivated to get back close. So that's why we say that it's the sin itself brought you back. Now this idea that you're able to transform, let's call it that non-kosher sandwich, only, who could do that? Only a person that ever ate that sandwich. <laughs> a tzaddik who never touches such kind of food, he doesn't have that luckiness, so to speak, to transform a non-kosher sandwich to make it holy. Only the guy who was the sinner, the sinner who ate that sandwich, who experienced something in their life that's a sin, they now transformed the sin to be now a holy idea because that's what motivated you to get back here. But the tzaddik can't do that. That means, as the Kabbalah puts it, that there are holy sparks that fall all around the world. Okay? Our job is to pick up these sparks. Now, it's possible that these sparks fell so far, it fell to a realm called the three impure klipos. Now, we don't have to get into here today the difference of the different kinds of levels of impurity. But there's a certain level of impurity that's non-elevatable. You can't fix it. A person can't say, I'm going to eat a piece of pig meat and that I'm going to make a blessing on and elevate it. You can't. Because that pig is in that level of the lowest impurity. So there are things that you can't elevate. Even if I say a bracha, let's say a person steals money. You say, I'm going to steal money and give it to charity. Did that money become holy? No, because stolen money is from the level of impurity that you can't elevate. But now, the person who went so low and now got inspired and transformed their life, their behavior to now serve God, on what inspiration? That they were so far, the sin that took them so far. So they actually took a spark that was that far down and they took it and brought it out to holiness. Can the tzaddik do that? The tzaddik never stole, is not interested in stealing. He has no desires to it. This is not, that's, that's not what a tzaddik does. A tzaddik doesn't go there. Only the balchuva, or as we call it, the BT, the person that has the power, it's like, you know, I call it the power of the ox, that you are so strong with yourself. You've come to that adult realization that, and you now took that back up. So now, what do you see? That in the power of teshuva, the person who went to the lowest places can now lift up sparks that only a sinner could do. There's a, there's a, there's a saying brought down in many uh, holy books, and Hasidus brings it down a lot. The saying is, the higher something is, the lower it could fall. 
Think about that. If you take a coin out of your pocket, yeah? And even if you stood on the beach and you strapped it into the sand, it would fall to the sand and make a dent into the sand a little bit. If you took it 100 feet and dropped it, it would go even deeper. If you took it 1,000 feet up and dropped it, it would go even deeper. That shows you that the higher something is, the lower it falls. So that means a person that fell into a low level of sinning, where did he come from? Where did your soul come from? Ah, it must have come from very, very high, even higher than the tzaddik. Otherwise, how would have you fell so low? It must be that your soul, you are coming from a journey that's so high and that's why you were able to fall so low. But now, why did you fall so low? What was, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? It seems like it's a bad thing. Comes Chassidus and tells us, hold on a second, don't get depressed yet. Listen to what Chassidus has to say. The deeper meaning when it says you're going to go back to Egypt means, and, and the, the, the conclusion verse of all the warnings is to tell you that the concluding point of all warnings is, is to get us to do teshuva. It's trying to hint to us that you are going to be want to sell yourself to the enemy. What does that mean? You're going to want to go so far to the place that it's like an enemy to God, meaning that you can't see even the spark of God there. That's the deeper meaning of this. Enemy means something that doesn't represent godliness. So you're going to be returning to the enemy. What does it mean you're going to return? You're going to return so far down in order to elevate it. That's number one. Number two, and here comes a Hasidic interpretation and I think we could appreciate this. It, the verse said, the Ein Kona. Now, Ein Kona in Hebrew loosely translates means there is no buyer. You're going to want to sell yourself as a slave, but there's no buyer. That's one way how to read that. Ein, Aleph, Yud, Nun means no, no buyer. But actually, there's another way to understand the letters Aleph, Yud, Nun. Aleph, Yud, Nun also is Ein. Ayin means the place of God where it's so holy that it looks like there's nothing there. In English, we call they call it like ex nihilo. It's a place where there's nothingness there. Ayin. Like before this world, everything was ayin. This world came about from ayin. From nothing came something, right? So ayin doesn't have to mean only this one meaning. There's no buyer. It could also mean ayin is the buyer. Ayin, from the place of Ayin, that's higher than any substance, meaning God himself will come and buy you. If you're willing to come back to Hashem, he will buy you, meaning he will take you in. We actually have this also in the prayers. There's a, there's a famous saying that says, Ein mazel liyisrael. There's no mazel, there's no good luck for, for Israel, for Jews. That's one way of learning it. Again, Ein could mean no Mazel, luck, Yisrael for Israel. But Chassidah says, hold on a second. Let me help you read the verse a little better. Ayin, Mazel Yisrael. There's a level of Ayin. There's a level that's higher than substance. It's God the way he's higher than this world over there. There's a lot of Mazel for Ayid. So how do you look at the verse? It depends how you read it. We actually have, it doesn't bring it down into Sicha here, but it's important to know, in the Rebbe's chapter of Tehillim this year, of chapter 121, over there it says, 
Me'ayin Yavo Ezri. From where can I, will my help come? Well, you know how Chassidus turns that? It says, from Ayin Yavo Ezri. From the place of Ayin, your help will come. Instead of asking it as a question, it's a stated fact. Me'ayin Yavo Ezri. From Ayin, from the place higher than substance. It also refers to the world of Kona, which means I'll buy you, also refers to that highest of the four worlds that we have learned many times that Hashem made the world, this four worlds, we're in the lowest world. The highest world is called Atsilas. In the prayers of Kiddush Levana that we say when we go out once a month, the blessings for the new moon, so there's four times where you say the word Baruch. You say Baruch this, but you say Baruch Koinech. So by Baruch Kainich, it refers to like the highest of worlds. Even over there, we bless Hashem. So the point is that when a person does Teshuvah, this is the point of it, when a person does returning to Hashem, now, Ayin will, Kona will buy you. The simple language of the verses on the surface, the way Rashi pointed out, the literal level is that when you're going to return to Egypt, to your enemy, there'll be no buyer. But Chassidus says, when you're going to return, what does it mean return? Return means really to Hashem. What does it mean your enemy? You went to the place of bad, low, where the sin is. But why did, why did you fall that low to bring out the sparks there? And then Ayin will buy you. Not Ein Kona, but Ayin Kona. The place of Ayin. In other words, the place of Hashem where He only sees you as a good person. Right? You know this. We all know this as parents. When we get a phone call from the school saying, your child is such a wild, you know, behemoth, right? You, what do you, what's, the, what's the reaction of a parent to the principal? You must be calling the wrong parent. Not my child. <laughs> Why do we say that? Not my child. Why do you say that? Because you see the beauty in your child. You see the potential in your child that the pr- principal not necessarily can see it. Same thing by Hashem. When Hashem sees you, you're going to say, you think Hashem doesn't want you. If you do Teshuvah, Hashem says, I'll take you in in a second. Because I only see you as a pure little tatala, a pure yid. So that's why Ayin will kind of. Now, we'll understand another point. In Rashi, which as we said, is the wine of the Torah. Hidden in the Rashi is the wine of the Torah. Over there, he adds even more beautiful depth. And he says like this, Since, what what makes you a Jew? A Jew is that you have a special soul. You have a godly soul. We said in the second chapter of Tanya, you're a chelek eleka mimal mamash. You are a piece of God from above, literally. So obviously, you can't say that the whole purpose of coming down into this world and all the warnings that we got in today's parish is only to tell you to elevate these sparks. It's not just to elevate the sparks. It's to elevate you also. The Jew also. That's what Rashi wants to tell us. Hinted in here. He's going to show us how we see this. It's not just to elevate the sparks that fell to those low paces by you going and elevating that you now became even a more special person. Because when a person does teshuva, it affects an elevation not just on the object that you're elevating, but even on the person that's elevating it. And how do we see that? Also from the same Rashi that we just learned. <laughs> Amazing how he how discovers this. 
The Rashi itself said that what does it mean vismakartem and ain't koner? He said you are going to want to be sold as slaves. So we learned in the negative is that you're it's going to be so bad that you're going to be willing to be sold as a slave. So he says, what is the greatness of tshuva? Through this, that you become a servant. What does it mean so great that you become a servant? Ah, You, on your own initiative, are going to say to God, I want to be your slave, I want to be your servant, and serve you, God, whatever you want. Now, what's better? A person who was hired to be a servant or a person that comes on his own and says, I love you so much, I respect you so much, I adore you so much, I'm willing to do whatever you want. Ah, much, much better. That's what the Balshuva is. The Balshuva who fell so low, what happened? He, on the surface, it seemed like he became so far from godliness. But that's because godliness wasn't revealed to him. He, he didn't appreciate godliness. Why does a person go and sin? Because they don't realize what it means to be close to Hashem. So they're missing the, the, the geshmak, the, the excitement that should drag you to serve Hashem. But when you go away from it and you go so far, you're begging to be sold. What does this mean? This is a major highlight. You're begging that I should become a servant of God. That means that I want that I should work for my boss, for Hashem, in a way that's even opposite of my nature. Maybe I'm not a cleaner by nature, but I'm willing to do what Hashem Hashem says, I want you to clean, I'm going to clean. He says, I want you to take these black boxes and wrap them on you. And that's to me, I I love that. I get so much pleasure out of it, Hashem says. You know, (laughs) take these wax candles and light them. Hashem gets so much nachas. You know why you do it? Because he says he likes it, right? Like, you know, like the man that buys flowers for his wife, he doesn't care for flowers, but she wants it, so he buys it for her. That's, that's called loyalty. When you do something for the other person. And now, what does it mean that, you, that where's the positive side in the words? Rashi said that they're not going to want to buy you. Why? What did Rashi say? Because you're gonna, you are, have already been subjugated to be killed and annihilated. Where's the positive side in those words? Where's the wine, the depth in that? See, it says like this. While you're living in this material world, it's like a place that's death. What does that mean? We have to work on ourselves to kill our desires. That's what it means. I want to come close to Hashem, but I have a desire to, you know, go to go play golf on Shabbos, right? But you have to kill that desire. So when it says that you're going to want to be a slave by God, but what's the obstacle? You have desires. Oh, now in Teshuvah, I reached a level that I want to be a slave by God by killing my desires, meaning by getting rid of my desires that take me to a place that I don't want to be. And here he gives us another revolutionary idea regarding a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. There's a Mishnah in chapter 5 of Pirkei Avos. In the end of chapter 5, it says something about every stage, age of a person's life. When you're 5, 10, you're 13, 18 for marriage, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, and then it says something about 100. You know what it says about 100? It says, when a person turns 100 years old, it's as if you're dead and you're gone from this world. Wow. (laughs) What's so encouraging about that? Why would the Mishnah tell me that? 
When you turn a hundred, it's as if you're dead and finito. You're, 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 you're nothing. How could that help me understand anything? The mission is not supposed to tell us things that are not motivational. So Hasidus comes and says, you know what it means? It means a whole different thing. It doesn't mean what you think it means, that when you're a hundred, you're like you're dead. What it means is, when you're a hundred, my desires of temptations of this material world are gone. Now I could serve God without any material temptations, that meaning temptations that will take you away from Hashem. Now the Rebbe says here, we are coming now, remember, from the worst warnings. Now the biggest blessings. He says something here. I don't even know where else he says this, if not more than here. He says that every Jew could reach this level even before you turn 100 physically. Or like literally, you know, on your, on your passport. Meaning, you could reach the concept of a life like a 100-year-old even when you're younger. You could be 20 years old, 40 years old, 60, 80, whatever, and you could reach a level that, that worldly, material things don't excite you. I'm not interested in that anymore. When you were younger, what did you want? All you wanted is a you know, good sandwich. You know, and all I wanted was to date a certain person or whatever it is, yeah? But now you reach such a level of maturity that those material temptations, that doesn't talk to you. Doesn't talk to you. You don't care about those stuff. Ah, you know what that means now? That these material things don't, it's like the person who's 100 years old. But what does it mean here even more? There's a verse where Moses asked God that he wants to see God's face. You know what God said to him? Sorry, but no human could see me and live. Uh, he says, you know how you're supposed to learn that verse? While you're alive, you can't see God. You're right. But if you reached that level of the hundred-year-old kind of guy, means your material desires are dead. So now I could see God. Huh. So when God said you can't see me and live, it depends what you mean. What kind of living are you? If you're a regular person living material life, yeah, if you see God, you'll, you'll get overwhelmed. You'll probably die. You, you will die. It says that's what it says. Lawyer, any other you can't see me and live. But if you don't live a material life, meaning you live a very spiritual life, you live a very in tune life with a more spiritual calling, that's the best. I want to show you a small story. It's worth for us to throw this in, then we'll finish the last piece. One time, a and I shared probably the story in the past, but it, it tells us the story. A person, uh, uh, one of the famous, I think it was a New York Times reporter, came once to the Rebbe's uh, secretary, Rebbe Krinsky, and he said over the story, he said the guy came and he wanted to see the Rebbe's quota, where the Rebbe lives. He figured the man who's running an international organization across around the world, a few thousand uh, community centers around the world, he probably has, you know, bigger than the, than the Queen's Palace in England, you know. He probably has this massive estates and stuff where he's running this whole operation from, you know. So <laughs> he said, let me explain it to you. The Rebbe sits in his office all day. That's it. It's his office. To, to the chassidim, uh, that's it. He doesn't, uh, that's where he, he said, what do you mean? He lives in his office. Said, that's his whole home, his office, everything. Couldn't believe it. He wanted to see it. So the secretary figured it's not my place to say that you shouldn't come and see it. He said, let me ask the Rebbe. So he asked the Rebbe. He said, this, and this reporter wants to see your living quarter. So the Rebbe said, look, I'm going at 3.15. I'm going to go into the shul to David Mincha. 
here is the key to my room, and you could show him it. He didn't make anything of it, you know? So the reporter came in and he looked around the room and he's like, okay, you know, like, where's the secret passages, you know? Where, where do I go through the tunnels, you know? He's like, no, this is it. This is the place where he breathed, he learned, he spoke, he corresponded, gave his answers to people, everything, that, that was it. Because material things of this world didn't excite him. It wasn't the material. If it was something material that came, it was all about how do I make this spiritual? So that's like this idea. When Rashi says that the guy, you want to be sold, but there's nobody to buy you, Rashi said, why is there nobody to buy you? Because you're already subjugated to be killed. What does that mean? Your desires are no more there. They're all gone. They're all killed already. So who's left to buy you? Ayin Kaina. Only the level of God, Ayin, is ready now to take you in because now you did Shuva. You came back already. Now, the truth is, that not just is these warnings in order to awaken us to do tshuva, but this is also the purpose of calling it warnings. That means even though in a revealed sense, your, all your sins that you do, that a Jew does, is your own freedom of choice that you did a sin. But he says, one second, how did it happen that you fell so low that you did a sin? It must be that from heaven they also pushed you a little bit. <laughs> you must have been pushed into that circumstance. You were brought up differently, you didn't have the school, you're living in a certain environment, whatever it is, it's true. We, get, we have to make the move ourselves to repent. But at the end of the day, how did you fall into the situation that you, that you fell into such a sin that now I have to repent it from? It's because from heaven, it was divinely or- orchestrated that you should be the one to fall so deep to bring out those godly sparks from down there. So do you have to be depressed if you fell into it? You say to yourself, you know what? I must have been divinely chosen to be the person to go down there because the tzaddik will never fall down there. So it must have been me. All right. If that's my job, I will take the strength and I will get out of it and I will do tshuva. And that's what it's hinted to in the words. Hashem, God will take you back to a place that you're never going to be seeing before. Even that this, that a Jew goes to a place that's forbidden to be, God said you're never going to go back there. But from heaven, there's a reason for you to go back there to do tshuva. And this is also the point that Rashi says, he says the words, but on, the verse said, Anios. Rashi says, you know what Anios is? It's a Safina. Well, what's, what's Rashi telling me? Anios is Hebrew for boat. Rashi telling you it means Safina, a boat. Safina is an Aramaic. Well, Rashi's not just a translator. What did he gain by telling me that when the verse, the Hebrew verse said boat? I'm telling you it means boat in also in, in, in the language of, uh, you know, of secular language. He says, ah. Because by telling it to you in secular language, that means you even have to go to the place of a boat in the secular concept. What does that mean? What's the idea of a boat? A boat in spirituality means it's a safe haven. It's a place where you can handle being in deep waters or in water for long periods of time. We all know that the life that we live in is called the turbulent waters, the Mayim Hazidonim. Ah, for that I need a boat. What's the real boat? Torah and mitzvahs. You want to float through this world with all the turbulences? You must have Torah and mitzvahs. You must have a boat. If you don't have a boat, 
drinking, you could drown in that. And that's why there's two kinds of boats here. There's the boat that we use the Hebrew word boat. That's the word of Torah mitzvahs. But then when you're telling me the translation into a different language, what you're trying to tell me is that even when I'm in the world of the 70 nations, I'm in a place that seems like there's no holiness there, even there you could have other boats. And that's why he uses the, 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 the translation word to tell you, to take you even further, not just in the holy realm, but even in the farther places where you're in a secular society and so on. And that's why Rashi says that since we're talking about fixing our situation, it's the place that I said you're never going to go there. Ah, but you could go there if you have the right protection. If you have the right kind of boat, you have the place where it's going to, help you carry it through. And then he concludes with a blessing that it may it be the will of Hashem that through learning Torah, but not just regular parts of the Torah, through delving into the wine parts of the Torah, meaning the secret parts of the Torah, the hidden parts of the Torah, revealing that in a revealed way, God will give us, each one of us also, in a revealed way, not just in a hidden way. He'll give you in a, in a revealed way where you're going to be able to see it with your eyes of flesh with nachas, with healthy children, with parnasa, in a comfort way. And all these warnings, if it has to be fulfilled, it will be fulfilled on the enemies of Israel. And every Jew, together with all the Jews, will be inscribed, written and inscribed for a Lashana Tovo Masuka for a good year and a sweet year in a revealed way till we get to the big bracha together with Mashiach. So this is the beautiful sicha of to do that, to be able to show us the drastic, serious severity of the curse. But then when we went deeper, we were able to see the bracha. And that's a mind-boggling, unbelievable appreciation to be able to learn this. So